Let's pray and jump into Ephesians. If you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 3 and let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your mercy and kindness. Thank you that we could, as a church, revel and be the receivers of so much of that goodness. Thank you that our men could get away, and thank you for the men in this church who, 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 who take seriously uh, their, their discipleship, take seriously their need for um, fellowship with other men. We're going to encourage them and sharpen them in their faith. Pray, Lord, that they had a wonderful service this morning together, serving communion to one another and, and getting into the Word and worshiping you on the beach over at San Clemente. Be with us this morning as we unpack this amazing prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a missionary by the name of Herman Jackson. Uh, Herman was really excited to get to the missionary field, but he was not so excited that when he arrived at the field, the car that they assigned him didn't work on its own unless it got some kind of a push start. And so the first day that Herman got on the field, he got the keys to his car, got in the car, and tried to turn the ignition, and sure enough, nothing happened. So he got some natives, and they helped push the car, and he turned the ignition, and it started right up. But every time he turned it off, it wouldn't start up again. And so he devised this ingenious plan that he asked permission from a local school that if some of the kids could come out in the morning, push start his car, and then he would drive around town doing his errands, and then what he would either do is park it on a hill so he could roll it and start it up again, or he would just leave it outside with the the, the gas or the engine running. So for two years, day in, day out, this was his routine. Well, in that two-year time, Jackson got ill and had to be replaced, and so the organization sent out his missionary replacement. So Herman was going over the routines of the mission field and the the responsibilities and who's who, and then when he got to the the procedure of the car, the new missionary said, as Jackson was explaining, says, well, well, let me look under the hood and see what's going on. And before Jackson could finish his, his procedure, the new missionary had found it out. He said, well, here's your problem. You just have a loose cable right here. So he grabbed a pair of pliers and a wrench and Tighten up the cable. Got in the driver's seat, turned the ignition, and boom, car started right up. Needless to say, Jackson was befuddled at this. The next day, they went out to the car, turned the ignition, boom, started right up. Next day, boom, started right up. Every time they turned the ignition, started right up. Two years, Herman Jackson had to get a bunch of kids from a school, push start his car, park it on a hill, or, or leave the engine running, wasting all that gas, all because he just simply had a loose cable. Now, the reason I share that story with you is because a lot of us can live just that way. We have all this power and resources available to us, but we're just simply not accessing it. It's just not happening in our lives. We're trying to live lives that are pleasing to God. We're trying to live this Christian life, and sometimes it'd be so frustrating, it's just not working out because we're not accessing the power and not understanding that it's available to us, as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. What needs to happen for us is, in a sense, we need the Holy Spirit to get under the hood of our minds and hearts with that pliers and tighten up that loose cable that's exactly what Paul is doing for these Ephesians in his prayer here in Ephesians 3. And once this cable gets tightened up, they'll realize that they have all the power available in their lives. Now, the reason that this prayer is at a very strategic spot is if if you recall, I was saying that chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, Ephesians can be broken down into two major uh, divisions, 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all the kinds of live this way, walk worthy of the calling you've been given, do's and don'ts, all these things. 
And Paul realizes that if they go into these three chapters that he's writing to them with all these commands of living the Christian life, yet if they don't have the power necessary, they are going to live frustrated, confused, and burnt out lives. Because the first three chapters, he spent the whole time simply reminding them of the immense wealth and riches they had in Christ, all that was available to them. But if they're not tapping into that, and they try to live the Christian life in their own strength, it will not work. So Paul prays for them that they would understand how to live in practice the position they have in Christ, and what resources are available to them to do that very thing. And so that's what this prayer is about. He wants them to live practically the position they actually already have, but they need to understand the power, how to connect the practice to the position. Does that make sense? And that's, what, that's how this prayer fits into the book of Ephesians. One Anglican writes this, who has not read and reread the closing verses to the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through the parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life? So in a sense, this morning, we are gathering together and we're kind of eavesdropping into Paul's prayer closet. We are getting to listen to how this amazing apostle prays how this, sing, this man who is probably single-handedly began the, 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 the gospel spread throughout all of the Middle East. And we're going to see how he prayed for these churches that he planted, that they would flourish and grow as we know that they have done. So with that as the introduction, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So this prayer, in some ways, some very real ways, is the key to the book of Ephesians in that it links all this wealth we have in Christ with the practice we are to have in Christ. So we can look at it this way. In your service guide, you'll see the way this passage breaks down. We'll see that Paul is describing in verses 14 to 15 his approach to prayer. In verses 16 to 19, his appeals in prayer. And then in verses 20 to 21, his adoration from prayer. So we have his approach to prayer, his appeals in prayer, and his adoration from prayer. So let's look at that one at a time. First, Paul's approach to prayer, he says, for this reason. Now, what reason is he referring to? Now, if you were here last week, you recall that Paul, anticipating he was going to go into chapters 4, 5, and 6, the, the living out of the Christian life, he paused, realizing there's still a little bit more for these Ephesians to understand. And so from verses 2 through 13 was this wonderful uh, pastoral parenthesis, so to speak, 
where he talks to them about this amazing thing called the church. That, that this was the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel as well as the mystery of the church. And so he broke off his prayer, talked about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church, and then here we have in verse 14, he kind of gathers himself again and is about to launch into the prayer. So the question then is, what are the reasons? When he says, for this reason, as he gets to prayer, what reasons is he referring to? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, I'm praying, going to the Father for this reason, that you have been made alive in Christ. He's going to the Father in prayer for the reason that these Christians have been made one in Christ, in chapters 2, verse 15. For this reason, Paul is going to prayer to the Father for what he says in chapters 2, verses 19 through 22. For this reason that they've been made alive in Christ, they've been brought one together in Christ, but because they've been made alive and because they've made one, they are now citizens of the same country, members of the same family, the very stones of the very temple of God. For this reason, and he dips back even into chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, because you were made alive together in Christ, because now you're one in Christ, because all of these truths about you, you're citizens of the kingdom, members of the family, stones in the temple, you're also inheritors of the wealth. You're also partakers of the promise. You're also members of the body, chapter 3, verse 6. Paul is saying, positionally, you've been made alive. Positionally, you are one. Now, you need to start living that practically. And so for these reasons that you have positionally been made one, for these reasons that you've positionally been alive, made alive in Christ, you need to start practically living this way, and I'm going to start praying for you. I'm going to start praying that what's true of you in your position is true of you in your practice, and I'm getting on my knees intensely and praying to the Father of the living and dead saints, he says, And he starts to make his appeal. So notice Paul's approach in prayer. It's not about how he feels at that time, nor is it about how the Ephesians feel. But he's looking at the work of Christ on their behalf. That Christ made them alive. That Christ unified them. And as a result, he wants them to live in light of who they are in Christ. So his approach is based on the historic objective reality that Jesus is, of Jesus' work on the cross. And then he launches into his appeal in verses 16 and 19. Now, verses, I'm going to break 16 and 19 down into two areas as well. You got 16 and 17. What you need to notice here, as Paul is writing this, even though this is a prayer, it's not some stream of consciousness. Paul is thoughtful and thinking clearly about what he wants to see happen in these Ephesians' lives. And so what you have is this well-ordered, fit-together progression of ideas, one thing that leads to the next thing that leads to the next thing. Now, uh, the, the British theologian John Stott wrote this. He says, these two verses, 16 and 17, act as a staircase in which Paul climbs higher and higher and higher, and the central request is this request for power. Okay, so look, what is that request? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power. So his appeal is about power. And so what you're seeing in verses 16 and 17 is this petition for power. Do you notice that? He's praying that they have power. Paul is often praying for power for these believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he writes, 
about what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Paul is praying for God's power to be at work in the believers' lives. You remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the difference between um, out of riches and according to riches? Let me, for those of you who may not have been here, let me remind you briefly of the significant difference of that. If Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla Motors, gave me $100, that would be a kind gesture, wouldn't it? If I walked into one of his showrooms and there he was, he said, Rick Rodever, hey, here's $100. Well, that would be kind because that's unexpected. He doesn't owe me $100. He just gave me $100 out of his riches. But if I walked into that dealership and Elon Musk said, Rick Rodever, take a million (laughs) dollars. That would be according to his riches. You see, him giving me $100 is out of his riches, just as if he gave me a dollar, it'd be out of his riches. But when he gave me a million dollars, that's according to his riches, because he is a very wealthy man. And notice, Paul is never saying that God gives out of his riches, but he gives according to his riches. Now, as as Adam led us, what were some of those riches? Let's just think about chapter 1. What are some of the riches that Paul's referring to, the riches of his glory, just from chapter 1? Someone out there, call it out. Holy and blameless. Right. And I heard one over here. What was it? He chose us. Verse 4, before the foundations of the world, he chose us. Redemption through his blood. uh, Verse 7. That's right. That's right. You know, I was thinking of... uh, Charles Spurgeon said, you know, I must believe that God chose me because after I was born, uh, he never would have. That's right. He says, I must believe that God chose me before the foundations of the world because after I was born, he certainly wouldn't have chosen me. (laughs) Okay, so he chose us in him. He redeemed us as part of that election and he, he forgave us our sins. What else? Adoption as children. That's right. What was that one over here too? Yeah, what was that? That's right, right. So he adopted us. We were, we were no longer orphans. We are now part of the family. He, he chose us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. What about verse 11, chapter 1? The inheritance. Now, let me use my Elon Musk. I, I don't know if he's got kids, but I imagine his kids would inherit quite a bit. What do the kids of Jesus Christ get? Right? Obviously, the Bible calls us brothers and sisters, but we are co-heirs of his inheritance. What is the wealth that is go- going to Christ? Whatever it is, we get a share in that, verse 11. Notice all these riches are just an expansion of what verse 3 says of chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then, boom, 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 all these blessings are listed out in chapter 1. And see, Paul here in chapter 3 is not praying for God to give these riches to these believers. He's praying that God would grant them the ability to comprehend that they already have these riches in Christ. See, he wants, to live, he wants them to live lives that correspond to the spiritual wealth they already have. He wants them to live in chapters 4, 5, and 6 according to the wealth that is already theirs in Christ. He doesn't just want to give us a portion of his wealth. He gave us in proportion to his wealth. And that's what he's praying for these believers, that God would empower them in their inner being through the Spirit according to his glory. Now, keep your finger in Ephesians. I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 1 
1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 8 says this. Paul writes, For while, well, I'll let you all get there, give you a few minutes to get there. All right, 1 Timothy 4 8, Paul writes this. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, so, so Paul is saying, look, exercising your physical body is important, but what's more important is exercising your soul because that has benefits not just for this life but for all eternity. Now, go back to Ephesians. You go to Ephesians, and I want to read briefly from 2 Corinthians. Paul saying something very similar in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 16, he writes this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul is saying is, I am praying for you for your sanctification. I am praying that your inner man is renewed day by day. Look, exercising your physical body is a good thing. That's wise stewardship. But to the, if you're doing that to the neglect of exercising your soul, you're missing the point. And then 2 Corinthians, he says, because the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is praying for these Ephesians. He's praying for their sanctification. Now, it's a $10 word that simply means to be more like Christ. To be more like Christ in our practice. And so Paul is praying that for them. Look at verse 17 of Ephesians 3. Verse 17 gives us the result of that appeal. So that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you might say, that that sounds kind of strange. What do you mean that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? If I'm a Christian, isn't Christ already in my heart? What Paul is getting at here is not the, the fact of Christ dwelling in your heart, because if you are a Christian, the Spirit dwells you. What he's talking about is the quality of that dwelling. See, Christ can be in your home, but is he at home? Right? I can go to someone's house, and I can be in their home, but I don't feel at home. Right? I'm not going to pop my feet up on the ottoman. I'm not going to go in the refrigerator and get a drink. I'm not going to turn on the TV. Now, in Hawaii, if you're visiting with some friends, and they see that you feel a little odd, they give you the code word, the permission. They say, oh, Rick, just make house. And in Hawaii, make house means feel at home. Well, then at that point, I'm going to go in the refrigerator and get me a drink and turn on their TV because now I'm at home. You see the difference. So Christ can be in your home, but is he at home? That's what Paul's getting at. He's praying for these Ephesian believers that, they can, that, they, that, they, that Christ is at home in their hearts, that they would have the power to comprehend Christ in such a way that he exists at home. Now, a couple years ago, my son was reading a, a little booklet he got from camp called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's an interesting little booklet. It pictures a Christian life as a house. And let me read it to you briefly. Through which Jesus goes from room to room. In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. 
In the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige and materialism and lust, he puts humility, meekness, and love, and all other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. He goes to the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities. Through the workshop where only toys are being made, into the closet where hidden sins are kept. And so on throughout the entire house, only when he had cleaned every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness could he settle down and be at home. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher from the 19th century, said, Rest assured that Christ will not live in the parlor of our hearts if we entertain the devil in the cellar of our thoughts. Jesus said this in John 14 and verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. So Paul is praying for this power, and he's praying that they would be able to comprehend the love of Christ, that, they, that Christ would be at home in their lives. But for what purpose? And that's in verse 17, the second half of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Yes, we want to pray to have this power to have victory over sin. We want to pray to have this power to live the lives we want to live. But Paul is saying he wants them to have this power to comprehend the love of Christ. Now, this is an interesting word, comprehend. It's a, it's a word from kind of uh, combat, either wrestling or battle. It's the word katalambano. It means a takedown. So if you are a wrestler, you know the unusual adrenaline rush when you've got your opponent in a headlock and your hands around his jaw and you've got the leverage and all it takes is a pivot and that person's going to go on the ground. That's what Paul's talking about, a grip on something so much so that you have confidence that everything's in your power. The book of Joshua in the Septuagint uses the same word whenever Joshua and the Israelites conquered a city, it would be the same word. Paul is praying that they would comprehend the love of Christ. He says, because if you comprehend the love of Christ, if Christ feels at home in your heart, more and more you're going to be the kind of people and the kind of church that live in the power of the Spirit. But here's something I really want to take time unpacking. Because we can easily see this here in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. First of all, that sentence doesn't make sense on face value. This is what Paul's saying. We want you to know something you can't know. Did you catch that? Read the text again. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, then what's the point? Paul is saying, I want you to know something that you can't know. What Paul is getting at here, and this is one of those things, I wish I could preach a sermon after the Sunday I preach it, because I figured it out better last week. Paul talked about the mystery of the gospel, didn't he? Remember that? Talked about the mystery of the gospel and the mystery of this thing called the church. We talked about what mystery means, and in our culture, mystery means something that we are unaware of. Biblically, whenever the word mystery is used, it's talking about something that you could not figure out unless unless revealed to you. So it's kind of an open secret. It's something that on your own you would never understand. You could never figure it out. So God in his divine providence reveals it to you. That's what the sense of the mystery. And he called the gospel the mystery. Notice, never in the New Testament do we ever hear that the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule called a mystery. Why is that? 
Because it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're not supposed to do. The golden rule. Do to others what you want them to do to you. It makes complete sense. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the golden rule, to look at the Ten Commandments and say, that kind of just makes sense. That's the way we ought to live. It's not a mystery. But the fact that we have a holy God, perfect and just, yet also loving and compassionate and kind, how does he redeem sinful humanity? There's no way this is going to work. There's no way the two can comport. How does God uphold his holiness and yet his great love? Well, he did it by sending his son to die in place of the sinner. There's no way we would have figured that out. We would either fall on the side of his holiness and feel the judgment of God and guilt, or we would always appeal to his compassion and love and kind of blink our eyes at sin. And that's what you see in the world all around you. Either people are living under this guilt that God can't love them, or they don't care about their sins because God's this benevolent, all-loving Father. They don't get the gospel because it doesn't make sense. The mystery of the gospel is God upholds his holiness and his love because he pays the price. And Paul says, this is a mystery that's been made known to us. So what Paul is saying here is that this knowledge of Christ that surpasses knowledge is that you're not going to figure this out. The love of Christ he's referring to cannot be figured out by just knowing more Bible information. So let me get to the love of Christ that he's talking about here. When I say the book of God, Okay, when I say the book, just hang with me, gang, hang with me. Sorry, you're not gang. My, my, hang with me. When I say the book of God, I can mean two things by this. By the way, we do this all the time in English, but because we know the language and context usually, we don't even have to think about it. Our brains figure this out. Glory be to God. If, imagine we had to think through this all the time. When we say the book of God, I can be either meaning it's God's book, it's the book of God, God's book, Right? The book of God, of God, but God's book. Or I can be meaning the content of which is about God. It's the book of God. It's not, I'm not saying it's God's book, the book of God. It's contents is about God. Does that make sense? You see the distinction here. The revelation of Christ. The revelation is of Christ, or the content and information is coming from Christ. Do you see how that's different? So this is, this is what's called, if you're a language freak like I am, it's the genitive. It's the trickiness of the genitive. When Paul's saying here, let me get back to the text, to know the love of Christ, so he's praying, here's the argument, he's praying that these people would pursue the strength of their spiritual strength, that they would pursue sanctification so that they would comprehend, take down the love of Christ. He's not talking about uh, that we would have these nice affections toward Christ, that the love of Christ that we have for Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the love that Christ showed, the love that Christ gives. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about our subjective love for him, the love of Christ. He's talking about the very love that Christ exemplified in his life, particularly in his death, the love of Christ. He's praying that these Ephesians can comprehend, grasp that they would have the same kind of love in them that cannot be revealed by just more information. So it's the knowledge that surpasses knowledge. It's the know, knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's praying, folks, that these Ephesians would love the same way Jesus loved. 
He's not praying that they would love him more. They're praying that they would grasp the love that Christ showed and shows would be the same love in us. Are you seeing what I'm saying? This is key to unlocking everything else that comes in Ephesians. This is key to unlocking how to live a Christian life. If you don't have the love of Christ in you, I said two weeks ago, if you don't have the life of Christ, you can't live the life of Christ. We all know that. This is what Paul's saying. If you don't have the life of Christ, you can't live the life of Christ. If we don't get that the spiritual life, the Christian life is just way beyond our ability, we will be involved in moralism and religion. And that is not the gospel. Paul is trying to keep the difference between religion and the gospel. And he says the difference is that you are praying that the Holy Spirit will continue, that Christ would be at home in your heart so that you can comprehend and know this love of Christ, that you would have it in you. Because we cannot love each other in our own flesh. My wife can barely love me, let alone all of you, without Christ working in her. She's a loving woman. But that's true of all of us. The reason I'm really camping on this is because this makes all the difference in the world. If we don't get this, you're just going to live a Christian life frustrated and moral. And if you're successful, you'll be moralistic and self-righteous and looking down at those who can't do it. But you see, if you realize that that love of Christ is filling your heart, you're going to start doing things that you had never anticipated. You're going to start doing things that you maybe wouldn't even want to do, but you're compelled to do it. Okay? Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, I think it is. Let me see if that's correct. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. I have completely gone off the ranch for my notes, so I'm not even going to bother anymore. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Paul says this. For the love of Christ, notice this, controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, speaking of Christ, that those who live, speaking of us, might no longer live for themselves. How countercultural. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me go back to the very first thing he said here. The love of Christ controls us. He's not referring to an affectionate, uh, 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 subjective, oh, I'm so moved for Christ that it just kind of influences what I do. No, Paul is saying, I'm actually being controlled by this this supernatural love that's radically changing me. Because that's what he's praying for the Ephesians. He's saying the same thing. You notice that he says, the love of Christ constrains me. It actually controls me. Because it's the same love that he had that's being poured out in me through his spirit. Because I'm being sanctified in the inner man day by day. And it constrains my life. Has that ever happened to you? That, that you're actually feeling yourself wanting to do something that you don't want to do in a good way? You're opening your home to people that you wouldn't normally have opened your home to? You're being generous in ways that you know that they would squander it, but you feel like you need to be generous anyway? And the great thing is it's not a moral effort. It's this dynamic of what is in the world's going on. The love of Christ is being poured out in your heart and it's beginning to control you. As Paul says, constrain you. I remember talking to a dear friend of mine. We were roommates once and talking about this dynamic and, and not knowing what's going on because even if my eyebrow raised a certain way in a conversation, I felt the conviction because maybe they thought I was not loving them well in that moment. I'm like, I never thought about that. I could care less about what people think oftentimes. This change of what is happening in my life, the love of Christ is constraining, constraining and controlling. 
And Paul is saying, before I launch off into four chap- three chapters of do's and don'ts, you've got to understand this. Pray that you can comprehend, that you can take down, that you have the power to comprehend the love of Christ in you. Live in such a way that the Spirit can dwell, Christ can dwell, and is at home in you. Finally, um, and then he says, so the reason he's praying for this power is to comprehend the love of Christ and then to be filled with the uh, fullness of God in verse 19. The point being there is what we say it all the time. Um, this person's full of, uh, uh, full of joy. What we mean is that, that joy is controlling them. That they, their, their actions are an outflow of their joy. Or, or we say if someone's full of anger. What we're saying is that anger, this emotion, controls them, and that's, what's, that's what they're responding to. So when he says you're full of the Holy Spirit, full of God, what he's saying is that you're controlled and dominated by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we see Paul ending his prayer. The, so we talked about the approach, the appeal, and then there's this adoration that comes from prayer in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, so Paul, Paul, he makes up a word here. He has no way to say this, that, that he is super abundantly beyond anything you could possibly imagine to do this thing. What is that thing? Transform you and place the love of Christ in your heart. That's what he's talking about. Sometimes we'll use this verse to kind of say, well, whatever it is that you're praying for, God will give it to you because he's able to do more than you ask or think. And the reality is that might be one application, but what Paul's talking about here is this super abundance that God can provide is the sanctification of the believer to have the love that Christ had that he showed here and shows us constantly flowing out of our heart. That's what he's talking about. Because if you have that love in you, it doesn't matter all the temporal things that we're not getting or things are not going our way. Likewise, conversely, if you have all these temporal things happening but you don't have that love of Christ in you, you're just going to be in a rut. It doesn't matter. You won't grow and mature. So what Paul is saying, arguing from the great, lesser to the greater to the lesser, that look, lesser to the greater, physical exercise, that's great. But exercise your soul. Pray for things that are your needs here and now. That's great. But pray for the sanctification of your soul. That the love of Christ will be poured out into your life. That's what we want. That's what we want. That's what we need as we launch into Ephesians chapter 4 next week. And what you're going to see is a lot of Paul given the, do you remember a couple weeks ago I talked about the indicative, what we are that is based on the, imper- the imperative based on the indicative. He's going to start going off, this is how we need to live, this is how we need to live, this is how we need to live. But first, he grounds it in who we are, and the link is praying for the sanctification of our soul. So the very love that Christ had is something that we're exemplifying. And when you have that, man, you're going to be able to walk in all these ways that he talks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you use your word in the lives of your people. That all of us together, I love how Paul says, with all the saints, that all of us are together grappling with these truths because we want to exemplify, we want to resemble, we want to live out the riches that we have in Christ. Living the Christian life is not natural to us, God. It is not. And Lord, would you forgive us for failing that? It is not our strength that we need to do this on, but it's you, that you will supply richly. Lord, help us put away our complex strategies and plans to get the car running. Help us to tighten the cable. 
to say what we need is the love you have poured out in us. Lord, help us to fill our prayers with that desire that you might transform us so that we might live like we're going to learn about in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Amen.